we're going to come to God's word, so I need God's help, and you need God's help as well. So let's pray together. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly prepared for every good work. Lord, thank you for your word, which is sufficient for everything that we need for life and godliness, for salvation, for health, spiritual health and well-being. So we pray that as we look into your word today that you will speak to us through it by your spirit and that we might understand it clearly, that our hearts might be moved and that our lives might be changed as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Some years ago, the son of one of our older members in Charlotte Chapel did something very interesting, which I would actually recommend to many of you here if you have parents who are getting along in years. He went to the nursing home where she was resident with a tape recorder, sat in front of his mother and said, I'd like you to tell your life story. And she spoke some length. He then transcribed it into, on paper, and I have a copy of it. She began by saying these words. Here is the story of a very ordinary life. What followed, however, was far from ordinary. Her early life included pioneer missionary service in the jungles of South America. Her later life involved great hardship in working at numerous menial jobs to support her invalid husband and her children. She finished her story as follows, and I quote, These homes for elderly folk have been likened to the lounge of the airport where the passengers have done all that is necessary. They've got everything ready and they're just waiting for their flight call. That's my position. I'm waiting for my flight call I don't know when it will come, but I'm ready when it does come. Almost 2,000 years ago, a person who'd lived an even more extraordinary life was now coming to an end. And he wrote in similar terms. He was not in an old people's home. He was chained in a Roman dungeon. And he would not die of old age, but very shortly he would be taken from his cell, condemned to death, taken outside the city of Rome to a chosen spot three miles on the Ostian Way, and his head would be removed from his body. Despite all this, the prisoner, whose name was Paul, declares that he is ready to depart. And his words have been preserved for us, not on tape, of course, in those days, uh, but in writing, in the New Testament part of the Bible. So I want you to turn with me to the final letter that he wrote to his young colleague, his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4. Last week we looked at the first five verses under the title, Preach the Word. Uh, this morning, God willing, we're going to look at the next three verses. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8, it's page 1197. To put the words on the screen as well, if you don't have a Bible because I want everyone to be able to see them. This is what he wrote. 
For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is God's word. And our subject this morning, ready to depart, is one that I would suggest, in fact I would urge, is of absolute relevance to everyone here, from the youngest to the oldest. Not just to the elderly, although, or to those facing death, imminently. Though as Dr. Samuel Johnson famously said on one occasion, take it from me, sir, it concentrates a man's mind wonderfully, if he knows he's going to be hanged in a fortnight. No, it should concentrate all of our minds for one simple, yet absolutely unavoidable fact. Not one of us knows the day of our departure, when our flight number is called. What we need to know, therefore, is how we can be prepared for that day, whenever it may occur. And these words that Paul wrote, part of God's word, inspired word, God-breathed word, give us the answer. They tell us how we can be ready. So if you're the kind of person who drops off during a sermon or thinks this is not relevant to me, whoever you are this morning, stay alert. Because not one of us knows the day of our departure and it is vitally important that you and you and you and you and you and you need to know how you can be ready to depart. Now, look at the verses in front of us. Three verses, six, seven, eight. Very simply, Paul begins with the present in verse six. He looks back and reviews the past in verse seven. And then in verse eight, he looks to the future. Very simply then. Stay with me. This is important. First of all then, the present. Death anticipated. It is said there are two unavoidable things in life, death and taxes. While we may manage to dodge the tax man, not one of us can escape death. Yet most of us, truth be told, avoid thinking about it and live our lives as though it were not going to happen. At least not very soon. I guess most of us hope to live a long and happy and healthy life and to die peacefully in our sleep. We don't want to face up to the reality of death. It was Woody Allen who quipped, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Interestingly, I was looking on the internet a couple of months ago, at the age of 74, he said this, My relationship with death remains the same. I'm strongly against it. But it's no joking matter. It's a serious matter. It's a matter of life and death. Yet facing his own impending death, the Apostle Paul does so with confidence and anticipation, and we see this by the two terms he uses to describe his death. He describes it, it's right here in the text, he describes it as a drink offering and as a departure. What does he mean by these two terms? Look at them. They're very interesting terms to describe death. First of all, a drink offering. He says, I'm already being poured out 
like a drink offering. Now, in today's culture, you'd scratch your head and wonder, what is a drink offering? We've had an offering this morning, but nobody poured anything in the bag. I didn't see them anyway. You put money in an offering bag. What's a drink offering? Well, the people, when Paul wrote this, the people would know immediately what a drink offering was because the religions of those days of those days used drink offerings and in Paul's case the Jewish religious system in which he'd grown up were familiar with drink offerings very simply there were two kinds of offerings or sacrifices that people made to God there were sin offerings to pay for wrongdoing to find forgiveness with God to get back on a good relationship with God to appease God to propitiate God and those usually consisted of the sacrifice of an animal and usually involved the pouring out of blood. There were also thank offerings. These were given in gratitude to God for something you'd received. And they consisted of inanimate things like grain, oil, wine, or even water. And drink offerings, when Paul says drink offering, this falls into the second category of thank offerings. If you want to read about it in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, you need to look at Numbers, uh, one of the books of the Old Testament, and chapter 15, if you're making notes. Uh, and these drink offerings were symbolic of something being poured out, a picture of a life poured out in gratitude to God. Now, when Paul writes this, for the last 30 years of his life, ever since the risen Lord Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Paul has poured out his life in a life of personal sacrifice, following in the steps of his Savior Jesus Christ, who poured out his life on our behalf. And God had accepted this sacrifice. He'd used Paul to make known the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. Now, while Paul's conversion, his experience, is unique, the principle it remains the same. The principle is a life motivated by service, which is obligatory for every true Christian. Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth. Here's some words he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. He says, for Christ's love compels us. Once we've received Christ's love, it compels us, it drives us, because we are convinced that one died for all, Therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should, notice what he says, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So Paul has been prepared over this past 25, 30 years to live a life of incredible hardship, privation, suffering, beatings, stonings, abuse, on several occasions, almost death itself. But now almost has become a reality. There'll be no last-minute reprieve this time. So as he faces his death, he sees that moment when his head is locked off, if it sounds not too gruesome to you. He sees that moment as the final outpouring of a life lived of sacrifice to God. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Literally, his blood will be poured out as a final sacrifice to God. And he knows this final sacrifice will be acceptable to God, as we will see in a moment, he himself will be acceptable to God. Now, let's pause here a moment. Are you ready to depart? You're only ready to depart as a drink offering if you're already pouring out your life in gratitude to God. If you are still living for yourself, selfishly, 
in rebellion against God, wittingly or unwittingly, then you need to be afraid about being ready to depart because you're not ready yet. But if you have experienced God's grace, if you can say with the Apostle Paul, we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Then, in gratitude, you pour out your life to God and you say, Lord, I'm happy to serve you. Whatever it is you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever sacrifice you call on me to make, I'm pouring out my life as a sacrifice to you. And when we do that, we face death with confidence because we see it as the final sacrifice. Charles Wesley, one of his great hymns, Oh, Thou Who Came Us From Above, it is, I think. The last verse says, Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat, till death thine endless mercies seal and make the sacrifice complete. Wonderful hymn, isn't it? So Paul faces death with confidence. For he sees it as a drink offering. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. But he also uses another word to describe his death. He describes it as a departure. The time has come for my departure. Now the word translated departure is a lovely, it's a lovely Greek word. Well, all the words are Greek originally, but it's a lovely word. And it literally means to loose or to loosen. Uh, William Barclay's commentary on 2 Timothy William Barclay is brilliant on text and background and so on. I wouldn't always rely, rely on him in, the, on, in theology, but that's by the by. He's got a lot of good things to say. And, and, and he describes four different contexts in which this word, loose, it's a Greek word, analusis actually, was used in the ancient world. And they're all lovely pictures which describe what death means for the Christian. First of all, the word was used of loosening an animal from the yoke at the end of a hard day's labor plowing in the field. You saw some oxen, actually uh, water buffalo on that picture with Andrew. And they work those animals really hard, but at the end of the day, they bring them into the barn or, and they untether them, they free them from the yoke and they don't have to work at least for a night. Paul says, I'm ready to depart. The, my hard work will finally be over. Secondly, it was the word used of loosing the chains of a prisoner. There's Paul, he's in prison, he's chained up to a guard. He can't go anywhere freely. Now when he faces death, the chains will be released. All the shackles that held him to this life, all the suffering, the problem, will be over. Thirdly, it's the word used of loosening or the ropes on a tent, striking camp. Uh, Paul, of course, was a tent maker by trade. As a Pharisee, he had to have a trade, and Paul's trade was tent making. And he traveled all over the world. He made tents, and he knew all about tents. Uh, and again, writing to those Christians in Corinth in the second letter, chapter 5, he describes our earthly body as like a temporary tent that one day we'll discard and we'll get a permanent building, a, a body that never wears out, a resurrection body like that of Jesus. Finally, and beautifully, the word... Loosening is the word used of loosening the mooring ropes of a ship when it sets out to sail. There it is tied up to the dock. And the last thing you do is you loosen the ropes, you throw them on board, and off you go on the journey. Paul has traveled by boat, if you read the book of Acts, he's traveled by boat all around the Roman Empire on different journeys. Now he's setting out, he says, my death is the final leg of the journey. 
I'm going to sail into God's presence. William Barclay concludes, let me quote, So then, for the Christian, death is laying down the burden in order to rest. Death is laying aside the shackles in order to be free. Death is striking camp to take up residence in the heavenly places. Death is casting off the ropes which bind us to this world to set sail on the journey which ends in the presence of God. Who then shall fear this death? That's just wonderful, isn't it? Death is a departure. Paul looks forward to his death, therefore, not with dread, but with anticipation. Now, how do you anticipate your departure? You can only view it with confidence if you're living a life of sacrifice, being poured out in God's service, responding to God's loving Christ, and seeing this life as something temporary, and death as a departure for something better. There's nothing more awful than death without any hope. Life without hope, without God in the world. And death without hope. And if you're another Christian this morning, you may say, oh, it's not relevant to me. I'm going to live another 50 years. You do not know. And even if you do live another 50 years, it still won't make you ready to depart. Maybe today's the day you need to get ready. Put your faith in Christ. Okay, looking back in the past, death anticipated. Can you say, in the words of the Apostle Paul again, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. So, Paul focuses first on the present, death anticipated. Then, perhaps motivated by the meaning of the word departure, he looks back in the next verse, verse 7, the past, work accomplished. Paul again uses familiar pictures from the first century uh, and life and culture to describe his past life of service for Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, I fought the good fight. And the picture is obvious. It's a picture of the soldier. Paul was probably reminded of that looking at the guy who was chained to his wrist or to whose wrist he was chained, depending on which way you look at it. <laughs> the Christian life. Maybe you're starting out as a Christian and you're finding it, um, you're finding it a bit tough. You were never promised anything else. It's not a picnic. It's a fight. The word, Greek word used here for fight is agon, from which we get agony. It is a fierce conflict to follow Christ, to live a different kind of life. Writing to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul reminds them and us if we're followers of Christ. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's reality. If you don't know what he's talking about, probably not a Christian. You're dead in sin and you don't even know about it. If you're struggling and finding it hard as a person to live a, a godly life, finding it tough to resist temptation, finding opposition in places you never thought you would do, Almost certainly that's a sign of life that you're a Christian, that you're fighting the fight. Be encouraged. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. This is a fight that never lets up until we get to the day of departure. 
We're engaged in a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Only at the end of our lives can we say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. Secondly, he says, I've finished the race. Now the picture shifts from that of a soldier uh, to that of an athlete. In several places in the New Testament, the Christian life is compared to a race. In the book of Hebrews, that's another book in the, in the New Testament, uh, just a few pages on if you're in 2 Timothy, it's written to Christians from a Jewish background who were tempted to go back, to give up the race and go back to their old religion. And the writer is writing to encourage them. He says, look at all the people who struggled and lived lives of faith in the past, who tr trusted God, Hebrews chapter 11. Then he comes to chapter 12 and says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these people from the past, let us throw everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us the key word is perseverance keep going complete the race I've talked to some of you who aren't yet Christians you've never started the race you've, you've never heard the starter's gun well you maybe heard the starter's gun and decided you weren't going to run but let me speak to those of you who are running the race and finding it tough you need to persevere Paul had to write to Christians in the province of Galatia. Galatians 5.7, he says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Turning aside from the race that God has marked out for you. God has got a particular race marked out for you. Run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Your race is not my race. You should be thankful about that and vice versa as well. Because God has a chosen race for each one of us. And we need to persevere to keep going. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. As you probably know, the origin of the marathon race in the modern Olympics goes back to a battle between the Greeks and the Persians at a place called Marathon, which is how it gets its name, in 490 BC. Uh, the Greeks uh, were odds-on to lose, but amazingly they managed to defeat the Persians. And the legend sprang up that after the battle was over, a soldier named Philippides ran all the way, day and night, to Athens with news of the victory. Finally, he delivered his message to the authorities. Rejoice, we have conquered. And he fell down dead, his mission completed. So Paul, anticipating his death, he sees the finishing tape ahead of him and he says, I have finished the race. How are you running? Well, you finish well. Don't fall at the last hurdle. Some years ago, I listened, read an interview. I should save the copy of it. I can't remember the details, but it was a very well-known Christian leader. He was now in his 80s, I think, and they said to him, at the end of your life, what are you praying for? He said, I'm praying I won't fall at the last hurdle. No matter how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been running, don't fall at the last hurdle. Keep going. Finally, Paul uses another familiar picture again already used in this letter previously, he says, I have kept the faith. Now the picture here is of a steward who's responsible for managing his master's affairs. I was trying to think of a modern equivalent. This is not exactly right, but it's about the closest I could come. Might be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. A nice picture of the last Chancellor of the Exchequer, our Scottish friend Alistair Darling. Uh, the Chancellor is entrusted with the guard, uh, uh, with the as a guardian of the nation's finances. 
So when Paul says, I've kept the faith, he is not talking here about his personal faith, I've kept faith with Jesus, though he certainly did that. Rather, he's referring to the faith, the truth of the scriptures, the doctrines of the gospel, which is preserved and guarded. In his first letter to the Christians in Corinth, Paul writes, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And at the end of his life, Paul can say, I have proved faithful. I've kept the gospel intact. I've taught it to the next generation. It is said, and I think it was partly a joke, that the transition of the last government that when the new government, the coalition government got in and came into the treasury, uh, the last person in there had left a note saying, sorry, there's nothing left. Um, But Paul is handing on the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the faith that was delivered to him down the generations. He's handing it on intact. He says, I've kept the faith. He's handing it on to Timothy, as we saw last week, to preserve and pass on. 2 Timothy 1.12 What you have heard from me, Paul says to Timothy, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now the challenge for us as a church, and I include myself in the older generation these days, believe me, uh, have, have we passed on the gospel intact to the next generation in Charlotte Chapel? And those of you who are that next generation, do you know the truth of the gospel? And are you going to pass it on to the next generation? Because all it will take is a couple of generations and it will be gone. You just look around the churches in Edinburgh. There are church buildings that were once full of people believing, preaching, teaching the gospel that in two generations it's gone completely and they've been sold for other purposes. So these are the three pictures that Paul uses. The soldier, the athlete, the steward. Notice the past tense. I have fought the good fight. I have finished, past tense, the race. I have, past tense, kept the faith. It's a sense of completion. If we're to be able to say the same at the end of our lives, then we need to start now to enlist in Christ's service, to enter the race he has marked out for us, and to know and to tell the gospel. So, facing death in the present... With the past assured, Paul looks forward, finally, to the future with confidence. Acquittal assured. Verse 8. Paul stays, should be the whole of the verse, not 8a there, sorry. He stays with the athletics picture to describe his hope after death. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now, Put yourself in Paul's position. Here he is in this dark dungeon, the Mamertine prison. You can still see it in Rome. And even with a bit of illumination from electric lights, it looks a pretty grim place. Uh, Here he is chained, and he is awaiting his trial before the emperor. He's a Roman citizen. He's appealed to the emperor, but he knows that his fate is already sealed. So what is in store for him? Well, there are contrasting verdicts in store for Paul. The verdict on earth before the Roman emperor, is that Paul will be found guilty and be put to death. Before Nero, guilty, death sentence. But Paul does not focus on this, but on a different verdict, the one given in heaven. Andy, you need to move on the next line, sorry. 
There we go. Yep, keep going. Yep, before Nero, guilty, death sentence. But Paul does not focus on this, but on a different verdict, the one given in heaven. Before the righteous judge, he will be declared innocent and will receive the crown of righteousness. Look at what it says there. Now, who is this righteous judge that he's referring to? He's already written about it. If you were here last week when we were looking at verses 1 to 5, he's talking about Christ Jesus, verse 1, who will judge the living and the dead. He is the only one who is the righteous judge. Nero is by no means a righteous judge. He's a psychopath, a tyrant. You can't trust his judgment. But Paul says, I'm going to appear before a different judge. One who is totally righteous and therefore able to judge with absolute fairness. And Paul is absolutely certain that Christ Jesus will award him not a perishable crown in those days, a laurel wreath, or in our modern days, a gold medal, but the crown of righteousness. Now the crown of righteousness means this. When Paul stands before God on that day of judgment, and Jesus Christ, the judge of all men and women, He'll be found not guilty, but will be acquitted. He'll be declared right with God. This comes not because of the work he has done, which is the fruit of that new relationship. It comes because of the righteousness of Christ. As Paul has written to the Christians in Corinth, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul looks forward to death with anticipation, and he sees that he will be acquitted and vindicated forever. Uh, that's why the New Testament in other places describes this crown as the crown of life. In the last book of the Bible, the Christians in the city of Smyrna are urged by the risen Lord Jesus, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2 verse 10. And Paul here is faithful to the point of death. And as a result, he entered into life into eternal life. He received the crown of righteousness and he adds now, for our encouragement, here's a promise for other people as well. Look again at the verse. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The crown of righteousness is promised to all who have longed for his appearing. We looked at the word appearing last week because in verse 1, it's the word epiphany. The glorious arrival of an important person, such as the visit of a Roman emperor to a town. But here it is the epiphany. The Lord Jesus Christ will appear in glory. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess he is Lord to the glory of God. The final appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. Just as man is destined to die once and then after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Every human being then who is alive and those who have died will face judgment. The just verdict for every person will be condemnation and death because of our sin but Jesus died once for all he says a sacrifice for sins in our place to bring us salvation those who confess their sin admit their need are declared innocent righteous in God's eyes that is our presence if you are a Christian that is your present status 
declared right with God because of what Jesus did for you. But it will be your final status, your eternal status, when Jesus appears to earth a second time, when that final judgment will take place. The question is, are you ready to depart? Are you longing for his appearing? You're looking forward to it with anticipation. Praying with Christians down the centuries. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Final word in conclusion. You remember I began with the story of one of our older members who compared her life in a nursing home to sitting in the departure land of an airport waiting for a flight to be called. I guess it was a good picture of her situation and I looked at my records and they show that her flight was called on Sunday, May the 5th, 1996 at the age of 88. And I see from my records it was my privilege to speak at the Thanksgiving service for her life and I spoke on these verses which I have on several occasions in Charlotte Chapel. It's a nice picture sitting in departure lounge but I wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea here. Most of you ain't sitting in the departure lounge with nothing to do waiting for the return of Christ or for your, for your death in 50 years' time. Uh, God has got work for you to do before your flight is called. I know a Christian man, a friend, well-known Christian leader, serving the Lord, <clears throat> had great plans to serve the Lord, and he was on his way to another country in Asia to set up a new project. And as he sat in the departure land of Heathrow Airport, he had a heart attack and died on the spot. And he got a different flight to the one he was expecting. With Christ, better by far. None of us knows when our flight will be called. We may reach old age, a nursing home. But it may be much sooner on the journey than we expect. Think of the case of those aid workers in Afghanistan serving Christ. Eye surgeons. Their lives suddenly taken in an instant this week. They didn't expect that. But I trust by God's grace they're ready to depart serving Christ. None of us knows. It's a sobering thought. But it can be a joyful thought if you're trusting in Christ and longing for his appearing. The important question right now that I leave with you to take with you to think about today is are you ready to depart? Let's pray together.